Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Christmas from the Beginning of Time, with a message titled, Born to Save His People. So let's turn in our Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm told that there were occasions in history when the Romans, known for their cruelty over their victims, would tie a victim face-to-face with a dead body. Wherever the living person then went, the dead body went as well. It must have been a horror. Eventually, the harmful bacteria given off by the decaying matter would kill the live person. I mean, that would prove that the living could not take the dead to themselves and transform the dead, but the dead would take the living to themselves, bringing their dead estate to the living. You know, sin is like that. It will take you to itself. The reverse will not be true. Sin kills. People may be short-term in their relief from it, but it always wins in the end. You know, in the end, it returns and overpowers the will again and eventually drags us to the place of death and judgment. You know, all of us who are believers are thankful for the blood of Christ and the forgiveness that is provided for us in the gospel. Through this, we have been delivered from sin. And Christmas is the celebration that light has won over darkness and that life has won over death. As Matthew, in telling the Christmas story, quotes Isaiah 9, he says in Matthew 4, verse 16, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them the light is dawned. But what do we do with ongoing sin? You know, it might seem to some that even though Christ's coming signals the triumph of light over darkness and the victory of life over death, and yet for them, in their ongoing experience, in which they attempt to overcome sin on a daily basis, it can feel like the darkness and the death is still so very present. Older Bible teachers often spoke of something they called besetting sins. You know, they meant by that that sins seem to hang on that are difficult to get rid of. They had in mind habitual sins, the kinds of sins we keep repeating, the kind that can become an unbreakable pattern in lives. But of course, those are not the only sins that believers deal with. There are those sins that seem to surprise us that come from out of nowhere that seem to remind us that we are less victorious than we had imagined. You know, and all sins can seem like we're being tied to the dead. In the life of ancient Israel, there was a festival that was held each year in, in the time of September to October. The, the Hebrew month was the month of Tishri. This festival was called the Day of Atonement, or in Hebrew, Yom Kippur. Something of that festival will remind us that when Christ entered into the world, he broke the power of sin and darkness. Leviticus 16 is too long of a passage to read on this broadcast, but I want to read some of it to only get a sense of it, but also to give a true picture of what happened on that important day in the festive life of Israel. I'm reading Leviticus 16, verses 1 to 3. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near to the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that they may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd of a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Now to fast forward to verses 6 to 10. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house. 
Then he shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, what follows in the rest of the chapter are the details of the sacrifices to be presented on that day. Now, I know that a text like this often leaves the modern reader wanting to skip over it quickly. I mean, it seems technical, has to do with sacrifice. We know that Christ was sacrificed so that these sacrifices are no longer required, and all that's true. But that doesn't mean that there's not something very significant that we need to learn from this text. So, Let me try to describe this day, the Day of Atonement. Now, first of all, before we begin, we need a picture of both the tabernacle or later the temple. And there are three places in the tabernacle. There's an outer court, and then as one went further in, there's a holy place, and then finally, a place called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. There's a huge, thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. The only piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, a piece of furniture that signified the presence of God. Now, no one was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies with one exception. The high priest could enter on only one day of a year, and yeah, you guessed it, it was on the Day of Atonement, and that was done with a great deal of fear. So let's review the events of that day. The first thing that happened is that Aaron, the high priest, took off his regular priestly garments, clothing that was really quite ornate, It gave dignity to his office, but on that day, he put on much more simple clothing. You know, this symbolized humility. He was to abase himself and humble himself before God on that day. Second, the people of Israel on that day also humbled themselves, or the text says they afflicted themselves. It meant that they fasted. So there's no joy, there's no laughter. This was a very serious and somber day. Third, Aaron got all the necessary animals for that day. They were a bull, two male goats, and two rams. And fourth, Aaron then slaughtered the bull. Now, that was to atone for his own sins and the sins of his family. His first duty on that day was to acknowledge that he, as their high priest, was a sinner just like one of them. If that step was not taken, if he didn't admit his own sin and seek atonement for it, he would not live to see another day. A fifth, Aaron would create a cloud from incense and allow the incense to completely fill the Holy of Holies before he entered. And the reason for that was to hide the glory of God, for to stand before his glory without some covering would also mean that he died. And sixth, he would enter the Holy of Holies, the smoke-filled room, and he would carry a bowl of blood from the slaughtered bull. He would sprinkle that blood on the Ark of the Covenant seven times. The blood would make the difference between mercy and damnation. If no blood was sprinkled on the altar, he would die. If blood was sprinkled, he'd find grace. Seventh, then he would exit and then cast lots, which was kind of an ancient dice over two male goats. From the outcome of that, he would take one and slaughter it, and this one not for his own sins, but for the sins of the people. And then he would enter the Holy of Holies a second time, this time with the blood of the goat killed to atone for God's people's sin and sprinkle this blood also against the altar. They, like him, needed atonement. And then eighth, then he would exit the Holy of Holies for a second time, now putting blood on key parts of the tabernacle. Now, why would he do that? 
Well, he had to make atonement for the entire tabernacle. That's because the sins of the people and their priests had defiled the entire tabernacle, and only an act of atonement would ensure that God would remain among his people. How would God remain in a defiled house? Ninth, now he takes a second goat. This one is still alive. Now, in the presence of the people outside of the tabernacle, he lays his hands on the head of this goat and confesses all the sins of the people of Israel over the goat. You know, what's fascinating here is the word that's found in Leviticus 16 is the word Azazel. You know, there are a lot of theories of what that word actually means, but I don't think that you have to get into the theories to understand what's meant. The goat, which now represents the sins of the people, is sent away, and it never comes back. The image is reinforced in Psalm 103, verse 12, which says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So the sins are gone. That's what glorious, and it's filled with joy. In practice, that would mean that someone is chosen to take the goat far into the wilderness and Some people have suggested that the goat might have been pushed off a cliff and others that it was tied to a tree and then wild animals would eat it, but that's all immaterial. The point is that the goat representing the sins of the people is sent away. It never returns. Now, 10th, after this event had all taken place, Aaron re-enters the tabernacle. He takes off the clothes that he had wore on the Day of Atonement. He bathes, puts on his normal priestly clothing, And then he offers up two rams that are left over as a sign that normal sacrifices are now continuing. Now, what what in the world has all of that to do with Christmas? Now, you might be asking that. Now, part of the answer is found in John chapter 1, verse 14. I want you to hear this. It says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, that, there is so much more to be said here, but this provides a basic introduction. And once we plumb the depth of what happened on that day, and then what happened all of those years later, when Jesus came into this world, we will see this marvelous connection and it will fill out for us in a wonderful way the meaning of Christmas. This year, God has blessed the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada with both the increased opportunity and provision to teach the Bible. It's undeniable that His helping hand has been at work as we reflect on everything He has allowed Back to the Bible Canada to accomplish on His behalf. Now we look forward to all He has in store for 2023. This calendar year end, Back to the Bible Canada has a goal to raise $519,000 by December 31st. This will help position the ministry to carry out all the plans God has crafted for His glory. Now, each of us has the privilege to participate in sharing the gospel through the trustworthy teaching of His Word. Your partnership plays a crucial role in ensuring the ongoing ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, and we are beyond grateful for it. To offer a gift toward our year-end goal, just call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The Day of Atonement was one of the seven holy feasts in ancient Israel, but this one was the most solemn. It's the only time in the Old Testament where fasting was required. No shouts of joy here. 
But what was required was that the nation should come to terms with her sin and that each person was to do an honest appraisal so that deep, personal, heartfelt repentance should be practiced by every single person. Now, at this point, you might wonder how I would relate this solemn festival with the coming of Christ, with a, with a cries of joy to the world, and the Lord has come. But the connection between the Day of Atonement and the coming of Christ is not as distant as we might think. Indeed, I want to point out three important connections between these two events. The first point of connection has everything to do with what the Day of Atonement teaches us about the Holy of Holies and who it is that might enter. You remember that only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies in that once a year on this day. Now, furthermore, you might also recall that incense filled the place so that the brightness of the glory of God would be shielded from the priest who entered with fear and reverence. We imagine him shielding his face. We imagine his hands trembling as he approaches the glory and majesty of God whose, whose presence just overwhelms him. Now, I've said it in the past. And I'm going to say it here. For any sinful child of Adam to look directly into the glory of God, well, that's like a human being standing directly in front of a nuclear blast looking at the brightness of the flesh. Well, it simply is the last thing you're going to see. The fact that God would have condescended to allow the high priest to enter at all is an act of condescension on God's part. It is mercy that allows a sinful human being to approach at all. You know, such is the nature of our God. But in this, we see that we need a veil between us and God, for it is impossible to approach God without some kind of a veil. Now, with that in mind, I would invite you to listen to John's description of the birth of Jesus found in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You know, in John's gospel, the word is a description of Jesus. When God speaks a word unlike us, his word creates. The speech of God brought the heavens and the earth into being. John tells us that Jesus is that word of God, who is both with God and is God at the same time. He is describing to us basic Trinitarian theology. Jesus is both with his Father and is therefore separate from the Father, and yet is fully God at the same time. And so in John 1.14, when John says the word became flesh, he means that the eternal, all-powerful, all-present, infinitely holy, and altogether glorious God came to us. But since such an event would have torn all humanity apart, you know, ripped soul from body, God in condescension visited us by veiling his presence, this time not behind a veil covering the Holy of Holies and a thick veil of incense, but this time behind the veil of human flesh. And when John says he dwelt among us, quite literally, he says he tabernacled among us. So the tabernacle with the Holy of Holies is the presence of God in the midst of his people. And John says, that's what Jesus is. See, think about it. God at the first Christmas, God did not invite the human race to come to his tabernacle. Instead, he brought his tabernacle to us. Indeed, the Holy of Holies was found among us. And yet, in spite of our sins, we were not destroyed, for he veiled his glory in the flesh of a baby. And that's the message of Christmas. And anything that fails to see this glorious truth fails to understand what this time of the year actually signifies. God is found among us, and yet we are alive. Now, I've said there are, in fact, three points of connection between the Day of Atonement and Leviticus 16 and Christmas. 
Now, up till now, I've only pointed out one of these. Here now is the second. The Day of Atonement teaches us that we can't approach God on our terms. Rather, if we're to draw near to God, if we are to enter his presence, God is to be approached on his terms and not on ours. You know, I can't even begin to recount all the times I've heard people say, you know, I worship God in my own way. Look again at Leviticus 16. It begins by saying the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. Now, that line refers to an event described six chapters earlier in Leviticus 10, verses 1 to 3. Let me read that. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. You see, on the Day of Atonement, God is saying that he does provide access into his presence. He does provide forgiveness, but we had better approach him in the way that he designates. But of course, the Day of Atonement is but a temporary measure, a picture of hope that one day, God would open the door to all who want to come. So let's make the connection to Christmas. Back again to John chapter 1, but this time, not to verse 14, but to verses 9 to 12. We read, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, just so that we understand this word, receive. Since, says John, his own, that is, Israel did not receive him, he means his own did not welcome him, but they instead rejected him. And since this is how John uses the term to receive, he means that if anyone welcomes him with joy or receives him and his message and bows before him, he gives the right that they would become the children of God, the right to belong to God's family. And that means quite clearly, that Jesus is the way to the Father. With his coming, a door has been opened for anyone who approaches the throne of grace can approach the altar of God and find mercy and forgiveness from sins through Jesus. To put it another way, should we attempt to enter into God's presence in our way, we are rejected and condemned. But the coming of Christ into the world means that God has opened a door on his terms whereby anyone who welcomes this child is invited to come and find forgiveness and grace and acceptance before God. And so the Day of Atonement helps us understand that the entrance of Christ in the world is really all about this. It tells us that the Holy of Holies has come to us and that God has provided the way into his presence. But the Day of Atonement also has a third connection to Christmas. We're reminded of the two goats on the Day of Atonement. One goat was slaughtered on the altar at the tabernacle. The other was released into the wilderness never to return. In essence, Jesus fulfills both of these pictures for us. He is in the end slaughtered for the forgiveness of our sins. And he is also the sign that our sins are never to be remembered again. You know, unlike the picture from the ancient Romans who tied a dead body to their victim, Jesus has released us from death which is the punishment for our sins. And that's why John 1 verse 16 says, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. (laughs) You know, that phrase grace upon grace is a very difficult phrase to translate. The Greek simply says, 
Karin Antikaritas, which can be literally translated as grace instead of grace or grace as opposed to grace. Now, that's why it's so hard to translate that phrase because we're asking ourselves, what does John mean when he says that Jesus coming into the world provides us grace instead of grace? Now, here's my best take on it. Instead of the grace that is clearly provided in the Old Testament, shown on the Day of Atonement, I mean, that wonderful picture of a holy God who is willing to forgive his people in place of such grace, as great as it was, has come this, the greater grace, the grace of the Son of God entering into the world who would provide for us what the Day of Atonement could never provide. That's because the grace of Christmas is so profound. It removes our sins from us once and for all. The Day of Atonement celebrated once a year, and it's now no longer necessary because this grace, the grace of Christmas, has been given to replace a grace that could not ultimately forgive sins. Wow! Christmas, access into the Holy of Holies. Christ, the only pathway to God in grace that is greater than anything that we have ever seen. What a marvelous, marvelous picture. You know, if you've never received Christ, today is that day. You might say, oh, Lord God, I accept Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I would like to have him invite me into the presence of God. I want to enter through Christ. Come, Jesus, forgive my sins. I receive you and welcome you as my Savior. Amen. John, what you've talked about is is pretty profound. In fact, it's a bit complicated almost. So I'm wondering if you can sort of simplify it for us in, in a way, sort of help us understand what is the main thrust of what you're trying to tell us today? Yeah, Mark Lowry, I think, put it very well in that very simple hymn that he had, Mary, Did You Know, that when you've kissed your little baby, you've kissed the face of God. Um, can you imagine that Mary would kiss her baby kiss the face of God and live after she had done that. I mean, we think about Moses on the mountain and uh, he could not, you know, he could not see God's glory and live. So all he saw was the glory when it passed by. But we have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. I mean, when John says in 1 John, that which our hands have handled, he's saying, I've handled God. I've touched God. I mean, God walked along our streets. God visited with us. He tabernacled with us. He was among us. That's what Christmas is all about. We have been visited by God Almighty. Thanks so much, Dr. Neufeld, and return with us next week as we continue this series, Christmas from the Beginning of Time. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. With 2022 coming to a close, you may be making plans for 2023 vacations, birthdays, other events. But what about your time spent with God and His Word? It can be challenging to balance our personal devotions with the hustle and bustle of everyday life. But Back to the Bible Canada has a great solution. The 2023 scripture calendar, Freedom in Christ, is designed with stunning images, Bible verses for reflection, encouraging quotes from Dr. John Newfeld, and most important, a daily Bible reading plan to help you read through the Bible in one year. Perhaps that's your commitment for 2023. And the Freedom in Christ calendar is available to you for free. Now there's a limited number left, so call us and ask for your copy today. 
Call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.